We just are on the tail end of CFHA's inaugural virtual conference because of the state of reality of things right now. So we wanted to reflect on the conference for a few minutes. This is our tradition in October. Usually we record live from the conference. I think the only difference this year was I got a lot more sleep and that was very uh, less uh, beer in my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> There's less Hello, welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I'm Dr. Grace Pratt, the editor of the podcast, and we have a small group here today. I am joined by Dr. Bridget Beachy and Dr. Deepu George. So maybe you guys can introduce yourselves and just a little preview of what we have planned today. We just are on the tail end of CFHA's inaugural virtual conference because of the state of reality of things right now. So we wanted to reflect on the conference for a few minutes. This is our tradition in October. Usually we record live from the conference, but I mean, maybe given that the conference was on Zoom and we're recording this on Zoom, maybe we're not totally breaking that tradition. And then we had sort of a practical question that came up um, that is connected to one of the presentations that Bridget did. So we're going to just launch into that conversation. It's going to be a little bit of a, a potpourri of a conversation today. And then we'll finish out with a special segment. We have an interview with Caroline Heindricks, who is the director of As One. It's an independent practice association in New York. And she, it's sort of a follow-up to our interview with Suzanne Brundage in the spring, who talked to us about family-oriented care. So we'll have that uh, special segment for you at the end. But before we launch into all of that, let's do our introductions. Bridget? I am Bridget Beachy. I'm a clinical psychologist by trade, director of behavioral health, BHC, lots of other stuff, uh, all things integrated care. And I'm Deepu George, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I work as the director of integrated behavioral health for UTRGV and BHC and faculty and all of those, and maybe a supervisor hat. Don't we, don't we all wear a lot? <laughs> so I'm Grace Pratt. I'm the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. All of the things that all of you just said, BHC supervisor, uh, teacher, and, um, you know, learner myself, as we all try to be. So I, you know, didn't give us an icebreaker question, but I'm wondering about kind of your history with CFHA conferences maybe some, a fun memory from the past or the first conference that you went to or anything you can tell us about that backstory there for either of you. Wow. I, so one of the things that I've really, uh, it's been interesting for me with CFHA is I think I, I came to CFHA and even before coming on, I was involved in CFHA because I had signed up for the early career mentorship program, I think like in 20. 14, and I think my first conference was either 2015 or 2016. And, and I think I got very involved in the PCB8SIG, and then it was just like one thing after the other. And so since then, every conference has just been like my homecoming kind of experience, right? Like I get to go see all my cool friends for like five days or four days, however long it tends to be. So yeah, that's how I got started, and I, this has been one of the best uh, experiences of my professional life, being involved in CFHA. Oh man, I'm actually looking at my CV when you said that because I don't even, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know. Uh, so I think it was 2014, which was Washington D.C., or then when was Denver? So it had to have been 2013, which I believe was Denver. And I had like these interviews lined up with various PCBH folks and like people that I'm colleagues with now, I don't even know if they remember <laughs> uh, interviewing Dave and I. Uh, and so that was a really interesting experience and we had a ton of fun. And ever <laughs> since then, I agree, Deepu, that it's been something that I look forward to and love to be able to go and connect with, with, with people who are now, you know, like we're saying colleagues and not just mentors or somebody out in, out in the world actually doing the stuff I wanted to do. Isn't it fun how those connections happen? Um, you know, 
my very first conferences were marriage and family therapy conferences when I was applying to PhD programs and trying to sort of get my foot in the door and meet all of these people and then having become colleagues with them over time. It's been hard for me to get physically to CFHA conferences because of limited funding and um, I you know, grad, poor grad student status, but I know that I went in Charlotte, um, in 2016 and then I was in Rochester in 2018. And so it seems like maybe I have a skip a year pattern to, to be in person at the conferences. Uh, in 2017, I wasn't there because I had three six month old babies and that just wasn't very feasible. (laughs) I think uh, we'll give you a pass on that one. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, all right, Grace. An excuse I never intend to use again. (laughs) At least not the six month old babies, you know, eventually I could use them as six year olds, but I feel like you could use that for the rest of your life or anything. You got a pass. I got three (laughs) teenagers. They just turned 13. I got three uh, high school graduates. I feel like you can do this. Well, you know, forever. we we laugh, uh, and it, I do I probably will use that past forever. But it, it's an interesting thing to juggle being a parent and being in academia and needing to travel and network and disseminate your work. And the you know the conferences play a big role for us besides continuing education, but also um, opportunities to collaborate and build connections and. So many times I see that work pushed forwards. And I think that's one of the fun things about going to the same conference year after year. You build this community, but then you go to a presentation and you're like, oh, I remember, you know, one that I saw last year that was the building blocks for this or the conversation as you're kind of spilling out into the hallway after the session and sharing ideas and coming up with ideas for the next year and things you can, you know, collaborate on and present together. And so it's, you know, they, they serve a really important professional and personal role for us because personal too, you know, all of us trained in places differently than where we live now. And our, our colleagues and our friends are scattered all over the country. So, you know, one of the highlights of the conferences as well is getting to get together and have lunch or have drinks or, you know, relax with colleagues and friends that you love. So anyway, juggling all of that and all of the the professional personal benefits that come from traveling to the conferences with also the responsibilities at home, um, which certainly isn't exclusive to just parents, but all of the things that we have going on, you know, personally and professionally at home. So they're fun. They're exciting. They're enriching, but they can be hard too. And I did find, I verified, sorry, I was not finding this earlier. It was 2013. And it was in Denver. And I have this verified because I did a poster, uh, a brief act behavioral health protocol for treating hypertension in primary care presented at the 15th annual collaborative family health care association, Denver, Colorado. Oh, that's awesome. So I think my first one was probably 2016 then uh, at uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. I think that was my first attended conference. And I think the only difference this year was I got a lot more sleep and there was very uh, less uh, beer in my stomach. (laughs) (laughs) There's less temptation for sure to stay up late. These are the one time a year I'm going to see these people. But I was really pleased. You know, I've been doing a lot of virtual conferences this fall as things have been, you know, moved and regrouped and trying to scramble to get my continuing education hours for my licensure for this year. But I loved the way that CFHA still did you know, you could see people's faces in Zoom and you could see those colleagues and friends that you connect with all of the time. You know, the fam- I'm part of the Families and Health Special Interest Group and connecting with those people and seeing those faces. And even as a lot of us ate lunch together uh, or the discussion group I attended with Deepu, I was, you know, usually that's in a big banquet hall and there's all these round tables as you're eating lunch. Well, here I was sitting at my desk eating my lunch uh, the, in front of the people on the call. And so, there were still some great opportunities to network and collaborate. I was really thankful for that. What did you guys think about the shift to the online format this year? Uh, I really thought that CFHA did an amazing job. I was super impressed that they had such great content and that they had it organized. And as much as there's always the little hiccups on Zoom, there was very little of that 
with like technical difficulties, you would just have thought there would have been way more. And a lot of the feedback that I had got from folks was that they actually felt in some ways that there were aspects of it that were more intimate because of the chat box and because people could connect that way and then ask questions in the moment. And then it wasn't just on the presenters to answer those questions that a lot of the other audience members were able to put in what they were doing. So people got this full experience and uh, which I feel mixed about because I love the in-person, I love in-person everything. And, you know, how can we use this to supplement versus replace? So that's where my brain went. I don't know, DP, what are your thoughts? No, I, I think nothing can beat in person, especially for, I guess, like the social ones like us, like we enjoy meeting people, like uh, talking in long form conversation, right? Because in uh, Zoom rooms and stuff, you're engaged in for a short while, we're not sort of spilling over the conversation into the hall and sort of bringing other people in. So I definitely miss that. What I did see was that a lot of people who traditionally may not have spoken up or have said any comments were actually comfortable in sort of speaking up and asking questions or even stating comments. So I think in terms of just getting a diversity of voices out in this format uh, may have helped. And I think I've seen some conferences do it in a number of ways. One is like use Twitter feed as like the discussion platform, right? So, uh, and I don't think, in fact, Twitter may be more anonymous than a chat room because you actually most people have their names as part of their zoom thing so uh so i've seen that happen really well in certain conferences so that doesn't need to go away and i'm sure there could be a virtual uh display of a chat room in any given presentation room in a live conference where people can chime in and be part of the conversation that way and generationally i sorry grace um i was just wondering what you all thought generationally that some of the folks that maybe didn't grow up with AOL, Instant Messenger, they kind of were like, well, I couldn't keep up with the chat box. I found it distracting. And I was thinking, I would even during the presentations that I was giving, I was able to not only respond on the chat box typing, but can respond in the moment. It didn't throw me off in any way, shape or form. But I think that has a lot to do with AOL or maybe, I don't know, that's just what came into my mind. It's not like I'm young anymore, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think AOL. you're right. You know, yes, you know, that's how I learned all my typing skills was I had to be fast chatting on AIM. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times I find in person, those side conversations are a lot more distracting. I get really frustrated when I'm trying to listen to the presenter and someone behind me is whispering about, you know, or sometimes not even whispering, but having a conversation on the side, but the chat, yeah, it's really helpful to be able to look back and forth. And I wonder, you know, one thing I've been reflecting on a lot, and I was having a conversation with the residents about this yesterday, is we're in this unprecedented time, as we all know, and we know that system change happens when there are, you know, big upsets, like what's happening, what has happened, and it is still happening with COVID. And it's hard to know which things will persist and which changes will become permanent. And I do, I love the idea of, you know, all kinds of technologies being developed right now, or people are finding lots of innovative ways because people are resilient and innovative and creative. Um, but I wonder about, you know, will there be an app that we can use in conferences that just like you said, maybe there's a, a screen on the side where just there's kind of a running chat going during the presentation that we can follow along and be engaged or it's just interesting to think of or I think there's apps sometimes that teachers are using in classrooms that allow for engagement and things like that so we will see you know I wanted to give both of you a compliment on you know presentations that I attended from each of you and also to hear some of your perspective of what it was like to present because when you you know when you were initially forming these ideas for presentations I'm sure you didn't anticipate that it would have to be online and so just from the beginning from the opening plenary you know the best plenaries to me are the ones that bring us together as a community and energize us for the rest of the conference and the opening plenary that you um, were a panelist for at Deepu, it, it was titled Our Community at the Intersection of COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter, Reflections on 2020 and Where We Go Next. Um, Naftali moderated it, and then the panelists were Deepu, Monica Harrison, Jeffrey Ring, 
Andy Valeris and Ebony Winford. And you all did such a wonderful job of just that, the, the best thing that plenaries can do of capturing the spirit and the energy of our group and highlighting the diverse voices and perspectives that we have and, and, and encouraging us on towards change. And so I wanted to, you know, just start by complimenting you on that and, and, the, and your participation in that and also ask for some of your perspective about how that went and what it was like to present in that format. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for um, sort of recognizing what it did, because I wasn't really sure what it would ultimately do, right? Because so we were given this broad three questions. Where are you at the intersection of COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter? How has it impacted you? And what is a big one-shot healthcare policy idea that you would push if you had a chance? Like, And so I took it from the perspective of where I am located because we are in a, uh, I'm sure every geographic location is unique. So, you know, I'm going to say unique, but your location is unique too. Um, but we are in the U.S.-Mexico border and we were actually great during the phase one of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then uh, after July 4th, we just like plummeted. Like it's, I think, uh, one of our, our neighboring county has now recorded over a thousand deaths. Population-wise, we're not as dense as Houston or anything else, or like the intensity of the loss is a lot more for our community. So I wanted to highlight that. And I kept thinking about what is a healthcare policy idea that would sort of help me think out of the box. And that's, of course, in the context of whatever was unraveling with George Floyd and all the other deaths and murders uh, of uh, Black lives across the country. And so that was sort of my headspace. Um, so I, I think the development of the whole talk or that seven minute video was, I called my team and I sort of uh, gave them my thoughts. And I knew at the, one of the things that I've been thinking about for a long time was the issue of human dignity. And this is sort of like, uh, thinking about the broader topics that that can connect to it as well. I think in the US, a lot of the healthcare policies and other policies fundamentally does not guarantee human dignity in several ways, right? Like I think there's an anthropologist named Wade Davis. Um, he's an ethnobotanist to be specific. Uh, he's in Canada now. And one of the things that I heard him say in one of his interviews, he said, when I go to the grocery store, and the clerk that's helping me check out the items, we both know that there's a deeper social contract that says, if you need to move to another job, you're okay, right? That my kids and your kids more or less have the same playing field in terms of public schools, free education, supported uh, healthcare. So there is a safety net that fundamentally guarantees certain levels of dignity without having to struggle too much about the business of being alive, right? Life itself is hard and the things that you need to do to live a meaningful life can itself be challenging. So you just need to do that. You don't need to worry about all these other things of where does my health care come from and all of that. So to me, that issue of dignity has always been key. And this just sort of brought a uh, focus on that. And the online format, I think we were probably the only speakers that sort of were told this is going to be online. So, you know, we didn't submit this before we were asked to do it much later. So I was nervous. In fact, <laughs> during the talk, during Andy's and Ebony's talk, I got kicked out of my Wi-Fi like 15 times. <laughs> so, and I was coming up. So I'm missing what Andy said. Like I took some notes and I miss what Ebony said. And I texted Neftali, I said like, for some reason today of all days, I'm getting kicked out every few seconds. Um, and so finally, one of my friends said, why don't you just use your phone hotspot? Because my clinic Wi-Fi was like, just really bad. So by the time um, I think Jeff was towards his uh, end of his poetry reading, I got on. Uh, so I heard Monica's and then luckily I didn't get kicked out after that. <laughs> so so scary. In the nick of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that and also just again for that really powerful, inspiring presentation that you guys made. You know, Bridget, I was going to talk about your presentation that I attended. You had several. Uh, I had a lot of opportunities to share, but one in particular was the 
panel that you were on about supervision. And that was one of those times that I think like you were talking about before, the chat was so rich, enriching what the panelists were saying and sharing resources and ideas. And it did move really fast, but building those connections, I just found really exciting and powerful and really augmented the expertise that you guys as the panelists were bringing. Um, so I wondered if you had any thoughts you wanted to share about that or any of the other presentations that you had to convert to online. You know, it, it actually wasn't as difficult as I had anticipated. Uh, I did one of the webcasts where it was like, you know, pre-recorded, and then I think the other uh, five or six were live, and it was interesting because uh, we didn't really have a chance to rehearse with the other uh, hosts or presenters, so you weren't in the same room with them, and so you're on this virtual platform, and so you're just kind of looking for cues of like the cadence of their voice to kind of like go down and it's like do I wait and get you know make sure that everybody gets the airtime that they deserve and that they need and so uh, it wasn't as difficult as you would have thought but it was you were very cued in to that and it was just a really interesting process for how well it seemed and you know afterwards I'd ask some of the folks like you know some friends and say hey did that did that go okay like did it flow seamlessly they're like oh yeah and I'm thinking oh, that's good because uh you know, you just don't know what it feels like on the other side for the participant. So I'm glad, Grace, that it flowed okay. And, and it when the came flowed to great it. for me. I appreciated it. Uh, any other highlights you guys want to share? And then I thought maybe it'd be good for us to spend a few minutes talking more about supervision. One of my favorite sessions was on Sunday with the PCBH forum. Uh, we had this guy named Robert Rosenbaum, who is a psychologist, behavioral medicine guy who did this incredible work on what they call single session therapy, which uh, strangely um, from a philosophical set of ideas that organized, uh, let's say PCBH and uh, this other idea of like therapy doesn't need to go on forever. Uh, it can be done meaningfully in one session. You really don't need to create a sense of dependency by setting up follow-ups. He was just amazing. I think he brought the conference home and uh, all of us at the forum, we were, I think, just deeply moved. And so uh, shout out to Dr. Rosenbaum in California and for all his brilliant work that he's done on single session therapy. Yeah, he was, he was absolutely amazing. If I were people, I would buy that whole ELO just for, just to hear his section. So it was, it was very powerful. And you can imagine the amount of misconceptions that go through folks' head when you hear single session therapy. And they, they're, you know, they're absolutely misconceptions. And the way he described it was very um, honoring towards this, the therapeutic process and not diminishing of it. And I think also on the, the, the PCBH ELO, uh, what I enjoyed the most about it was moderating a panel that had um, Kirk Strassel, Perinda Kotri, Patty Robinson, I think, there's somebody else on it. I'm sorry if I'm forgetting. Uh, but Kirk, just hearing Kirk talk was just so amazing. So he was yes. my he was my supervisor for my postdoctoral fellowship. I believe 2014 to 2015 is the accurate dates, and then he retired in 2016. And I it was just so great to hear him giving just words of wisdom out to the masses. And it was, uh, it was an absolute honor to be able to just be a part of that and to hear what he had to say. So definitely recommend that anybody get their hands on, if, you, if, if Kirk Strassel has an opportunity to do a presentation or anything, just to, to soak it up because he's a true guru and a true genius. Yeah, do you remember what he said about complexity, Bridget? Do you wanna say a little bit about what his, uh overall framework and complexity was? Was it the approach and the avoidance? Was that? No, where he talks about we label people or situations complex because they or the situation doesn't fit our model. And therefore, it is the limitations of our uh, presence in that moment that makes certain things complex, not the patient or their context or their story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything that he, I feel like that he said, and the other panelists, of course, uh, I think the reason why I was so special with Kirk was the fact that I haven't heard him speak a lot, whereas the others 
are very, you know, they're a little bit, I guess, more, you know, active. You can turn on a podcast and hear them or um, presenting at a lot of conferences, whereas, uh, as many know, Kirk is uh, semi-retired. So it's, it's not as frequent that you can hear his words of wisdom. But yeah, he really throws all of psychology and turns it up on its head. He is very critical of the labels that we give, um, the diagnostic procedures, the fact that uh, if things don't fall into, as DP was saying, fall into our box, then basically we deem that something that we can't help with and all of the other ways in which we as a mental health field and I'll extend it to all of healthcare limit ourselves and does not honor the dignity of each and every human. That is so powerful. Thank you for sharing that and amplifying that message to our listeners. Next year's conference is fingers crossed. I feel even nervous just saying this out loud, but we're going to do it. It's going to be in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I believe in CFHA's power to be creative and to learn from the lessons that we did get from this conference. And so hopeful that some of the things uh, that we learned about going digital can be integrated to augment that in-person experience, but also super hopeful that we're back in person again next year. Um, I think the other panelist might have been Neftali, and I think I left him off on the actual panel. Wow. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> I think I left him off like three times, unless that was the other one. Deepu, do you remember? I think it was Aditya Bhagwat from... Oh, that Ask a Trainer. Yeah, Ask a Trainer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a complexity. I don't know. But whatever it was, poor Neftali, I left off of the panel. So, like, I went through... It was, like, my first time moderating, so I, like, went through all the items and introduced everybody... And uh, Neftali was there. He's like, hey, I think I'm on this panel. <laughs> I was like, just mortified. You know what I mean? It was. <laughs> now uh, I'm reliving all of it uh, for the podcast. Well, we'll cut, could... cut all of this out. Just cut well, the whole thing. <laughs> either that or we could consider this your formal public apology. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk supervision, um, because that's something that I think will be relevant to a lot of our listeners, whether they were able to attend the conference or not, and is related to something that you were presenting on at the conference, Bridget. So Deepu, you were telling us a little bit before that you may be moving into a, a little more of a supervisor role. Can you share a little bit more about that? No. <laughs> um, yes, I'm I'm, uh, yes I'm, at this point with the, all like we talk about all the different hats that's one hat that I'm like reluctant to sort of like wear so I'm uh, aware of my own uh, uh, frame box that I'm bringing to it so, so yeah we, we have a couple of new trainees uh, and a couple of new um, staff in our system that are new to PCBH and I think one of them is going to like the specific trainee that we have, he'll be with my site for about um, four more months, and then he'll go to the other family medicine site. So we have to formally organize and sort of start that process. And um, so that's one thing I'm looking forward to in a way, but kind of feel underprepared because I just haven't had to pay attention to that role for a long time. And so and now having to sort of do it, I'm like, okay, I need to get uh, some tips and frameworks and, and sort of like steep into that uh, gracefully if I can. And so that's, that's where I am. I, and you too, I rely on your wisdom to sort of like help me shape up. Well, I guess I will say, I do think one thing that I've learned, and it's interesting working with groups of students, because it's sort of like the, you know, it's the balance of scaffolding of meeting them where they are but also looking for trends across people and helping them as a group if there's more than one trainee because you know it as we said all of us wear many hats and we can't afford for supervision to be our only hat so having some kind of system in place some kind of organization definitely is helpful um so for for us that has looked like individual supervision but also team meetings that are kind of a combination between group supervision and business meeting um talking about some of the logistics of how things go but also interesting cases or stuck points people have come up against and then also throwing in some live supervision sometimes because nothing can 
substitute for that really watching the person and their, you know, their use of the skills. But I find, and this may just be to do with my personality, if I don't have a system and a plan in place for how that's going to go and how often we're going to meet and how I'm going to document it and how the meeting is going to flow, then the whole thing just kind of falls apart. And so that's what my advice to you um, would be to look for what kind of system can you create thinking through those right. different elements of supervision and, and how can you do it in a way that's going to be reasonable and realistic for your time, but also meaningful for your students. Well, one thing that is I'm okay with is like, so when I'm in clinic, right? Like the, 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 the intern that we have, he follows me. And so like he's in his early weeks here, that part I'm comfortable with, right? Like taking him into the room with me, finishing a visit, reviewing that. And then eventually I'll start and he's shadowing our other VHC. Um, that part I'm okay with. Like live clinical teaching is what we do with residents um, because we have a resident assigned to the VHC clinic as a VHC uh, multiple times uh, during that. We have like a two by two schedule in our uh, clinic uh, where residents are in primary care for two weeks and then they go to their rotation and they return for two weeks to increase continuity of care. And so that I'm used to. It's the more uh, systematic, structured uh, conversation stuff, like an hour-long requirements and stuff that we have to meet for programs and licensing and all of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so, Deepu, it's one hour a week? Yeah, I think that's the requirement. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then it's a group. There's It could be individual or group. So one of the other BATs is a younger BATC who's getting her licensure as an LCSW. So I, so I think I'm just going to create a group setting. It's, it'll be two is what I'm thinking. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think on the individual side, I think the thing that makes the BHC supervision just a little bit more interest, well, that's not fair to say. I find it to be interesting because there's clinical aspects, right? But then there's the operational and the logistics. And I think we had talked about it at one of the CFHA presentations. And it's just the fact that not, what I found is that most interns, there's something that they're not bought into, which is understandable because, I mean, the learning curve is ridiculously high uh, because it's like, okay, we well, need to know what to do clinically. Oh, and by the way, you have half the time or probably, you know, statistically, if you were, if they were trained in more of a traditional, you could start on your treatment plan the third or fourth session, whereas we're like, oh yeah, you're 12 minutes in, so we got to make that transition. So there's not only just clinical and can be difficult or challenging, but now we're uh, having it shortened amount of time. You also have to have all the team-based aspects of being available and being accessible and being concise when you talk, uh, being where you're like almost like you're like a salesperson so you're like marketing what you're doing <laughs> and then there's the logistical aspect of you're in a room with a visit a warm handoff is coming through somebody else wants your opinion about this somebody else is calling in on this uh triage and you're like how do i even how do i even manage that and so i found that the supervision that i'm that i've now switched to our postdocs before it was the pre-doc and now the last two years has been our postdoc it's been a little bit easier because our postdocs are bought into the system. So I get to spend less time making sure that they believe in primary care and family medicine and all these different things and more just kind of like, Hey, we can go to the next level. But with the pre-docs, I, some folks, they're just like, I don't really think that I should be interrupted. Some folks are like, I don't really believe that I can make a difference in one visit. And so now you're up against a whole nother set of issues, not issues, but things that folks need to work through. So yeah, I, I think that there's definitely not like a one size fits all. And there's so many things that can go wrong. <laughs> Deepu, let me tell you just really practically exactly what I do to organize my formal supervision in case it's helpful for you at all. I'm going to um, write this down. Too. Here we go. Here we go. So I have learned that I need for the supervisees to put some thought into supervision before they come. And the way that I have that, I have a little worksheet that they fill out every week for supervision. And it goes case by case. And they don't have to put all of their integrated care encounters like 
for sure, you know, sometimes a warm handoff is more of a meet and greet. I don't have them put those on there. But, and again, some of this is system dependent too. So remember at my site, I'm dual training them in like brief therapy and also more integrated care. So they have their traditional therapy cases and they have their significant integrated care cases where they were providing some intervention or doing some assessment or collaborating with the physician. And they prepare all of those on this worksheet. And it's just a signifier of what the patient's initial was, what the date was that they saw them so that I can find the, the note if I need to. And then they reflect in this little box just a few sentences or phrases about their perceptions of what went well or where they got stuck or what we can talk about in supervision. And then at the bottom of the worksheet, I have them think broadly about what clinical concerns or competencies are they addressing right now or struggling with right now? What are the intersectional issues that are coming up for them in their work in our clinic? And then any general issues. And a lot of times they'll put you know, self-care stuff, self of the therapist, or collaboration issues with other physicians right there. And so I have them prepare that and send it to me. And then as we do supervision, as we talk about specific cases, I plug in a few more words. I, we set together at my computer and I have it where we can both see it. So we're sort of collaboratively creating the documentation for their supervision. And I plug in a few more words about each thing that we talk about. So then at the end of the session, that's my notes from our supervision. It helps them to have been organized and to come prepared to supervision. And then, you know, we're done and we move on. And that's been something that's been really helpful for them to have some kind of structure. I don't know, you know, what that might look like for you. Um, but that combination of thinking about specific cases, but then also thinking broadly about themes that are happening and they're noticing has been helpful. Uh, Deepu, the, the topics that I had uh, the very first thing we discuss is productivity. So productivity review is number one. And uh, we give people uh, ample time to essentially ramp up. Documentation and charting concerns is our second topic. Operations, clinic, and workflow. So like operations, clinical workflow is our third. Fourth topic is clinical. So that's kind of uh, what, you know, Grace is saying, case review, questions, reactions, concerns, interventions. Uh, ethical issues. And then uh, the fifth one we have is our behavioral scientist role because our postdocs are trained to be behavioral scientists. Yeah, same thing. Our other one is diversity. So anything internal or external, and that could include clinical, you know what I mean? Like a clinical case. Uh, and, but just, it could be more at large and then administrative and leadership because our postdocs train to be leaders in integrated care and then supervision concerns and feedback. So those are our main topics we have. And so they come prepared to sort of talk about each of these things. Uh, so it's a standing agenda. And what we do, kind of like we do in our BHC work, I say, is there anything in particular scanning these that we need to give ample time to? And so then I bring it to the top of the agenda and then we start there and then we, we move through. And if something is like say a clinical operations and there's no issues there, we skip that and we move on to something else. Uh, and then, you know, um, supervision concerns, feedback, what's working, what's not, that might not be something that's every time, but it's at least a standing item so that if they wanted it to be, it could be, because a lot of them have, you know, it's hard for them to bring up if they had a supervision issue, <laughs> like, oh, hey, I wanna talk about how this isn't working for me. Whereas if you have it as a standing item, it gives them that invite. So everything on here, I guess, is an invite, but we can use, our agenda setting collaboration at the top of the hour to see. And we actually get two hours with them. So it's a eternity in the PCBH world. And that's because it's mandated to have the two hours for the, the pre-docs. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Some of the differences in the what we're talking about of our methods for supervision have a lot to do with the needs of our learners. So you're training pre-doc and post-doc learners, and I'm supervising people in their practicum for their master's program. And so the questions that they're asking are a lot different, but then, you know, so we've created these systems that work to meet the needs of their learners. And so I guess that would be a broader question for you, Deepu, thinking about, you know, what are going to be the needs of your learners and the needs of the system, and yeah. how can you connect around that? Sure. And, and do you use these spaces uh, for like to assign additional reading or that's something you assign and they read on their own and you don't bring it back to check in on how they're doing with that or you just those are just side curbside conversations? 
because right now I engage in a lot of those. So I just didn't know if it belonged in a more a structured format. I do them as they come up. So I'll pull something off my shelf and say, oh, you need to read this um, for the, as an extension of this conversation that we've been having. And then I'll make a note of it. So then, you know, anything I don't write down is going to fall out of my brain. So I make a note out of it. So the next week, when I look back at our supervision notes from the week before, I can say, oh, hey, how is that thing that you read? Let's talk about how that applies. Yeah. And then we have other uh, aspects of our supervision or of our entire pre-doc and postdoctoral fellowship. So I don't spend a lot of time with like readings or any homework of any kind because they have other, uh, they have like four hours of group supervision. They have monthly didactics. They, okay. they just have other um, avenues uh, for that. So. Okay. Yeah. So when the, my intern is in clinic with me, I, I would notice like certain things. And so I'd like the other day I'd, sort of reminded him, like, I said, okay, let's just think about where we are, right? Let's think about primary care. So I said, for the next few months, I just want you to uh, keep your sort of like therapy skill set hat nearby, um, because you want that when you're creatively thinking about what would uh, this patient benefit from. Um, and I said, I want you to really practice putting on your primary care hat. And, and I gave him like the Barbara Starfield article from I think 2016, where she did like a reprise of her original work. And so he's, you know, he's like reading through that. And, and at some point I would want to sort of bring that up and sort of discuss that. And um, so there are these little things I hand off as we're in clinic. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, DB, I think that's, I think you're going to do amazing at this. Uh, and. I think that that's one of the biggest issues with early learners coming from the mental health field is that they have had almost no exposure to the healthcare system of what primary care is. If there's one single thing that every new learner that I would have is to understand what primary care is because nothing makes sense. I feel like in the in PCBH world, if you don't know what primary care is. So it's like, why am I focusing on this person's functioning? Why are we doing this one smart goal? How is this addressing PTSD? Cause it's like, but we're, we are, but we aren't. Uh, it's, it's a nuance and it's, it's very confusing to folks if they don't know the setting they're in. You know, not to get to systems theory terminology on us. No, but I, I do. I like it. I love systems. I think maybe, it, you know, it, as I'm listening, I'm thinking there's an isomorphic process happening for you, Deepu, where our learners are coming from these other things they've done before and things they feel comfortable and they're like, I don't know how to work in this setting. And we're like, yes, you do. All of these things you learn can apply and it just takes a little tweak or a little shaping or a little thinking about the characteristics of this unique opportunity. And I kind of am just sensing that from you. Any qualms or hesitations that you have about doing supervision are analogous to that because you do teach and you do supervise and you do share this wisdom and mentorship in so many of your relationships and just different settings. And I think when you start doing this work, you're going to just bring all of that and to realize it's, it's really more minor tweaks and you do know what you're doing. It's just a chance to do it. I sure hope so. But yeah, I think <laughs> what you guys are saying makes sense because I think I, I just never had to sort of formally say here is like our time right like I just had learners on the fly and even in the past if it was BHCs they were hired and they were part of the system and they would shadow review and then they're independent practitioners right so I'm not um, like like babysitting them in that sense, right? The, the minute you're on the floor and a warm handoff comes in and they say that they're going to be 20 more minutes, even though they've been in there for 45 minutes, you'll have lots to talk about during supervision. <laughs> yeah. Right. What yeah. were you doing in there? We're at <laughs> minute 74. That's longer than what you get in traditional care. How are, what? <laughs> what, what happened in there? There's room yeah. for that for sure. Oh, you didn't uh, respond to the seven, you know, seven warm handoffs. I had to get them all. Yeah. <laughs> Once those come up, you'll have lots to talk about. <laughs> uh, well, we need to kind of close this conversation. You know, I 
was like, oh, I don't know how today's going to go. We may end up short. And then as always happens, I think we're gonna, we're doing well. We might be a little long. Um, I'm going to send us to our special segment real quick. Again, that is an interview with Caroline Heinrichs, who is the director of an independent practice association in New York called As One. I had a great, really inspiring conversation with her about the ways that an idea sort of gets put into practice to become reality and how um, we can work with aligning our goals with all of the invested parties, um, sometimes literally the financial partners that are available with us um, are, are going to work with us. And, you know, she has a lot of great things to say about that. So let's go to our interview with Caroline. We have Caroline Heinrichs with us today, and Caroline was introduced to us by Suzanne Brundage, who we had on the show um, last spring talking about family integrated care. And so I asked Caroline to join us to talk about her organization as one, which is based in New York, as an example that Suzanne highlighted as someone who's really doing this work of putting those policy recommendations into action. Uh, so, Caroline, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And I wondered if you could give an introduction about yourself and your organization. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. So, um, I am the executive director of As One IPA. We are an emerging New York City based healthcare independent practice association, or IPA, that focuses on the mental, physical, and social needs of children, adults, and families. And we strive to be integrated, and so that's really where our name came from. We seek to act as one in delivering our care and services. As One was formed in 2018, and we were really um, we got off the ground through some uh, New York State funding that was aimed at community-based providers of healthcare services, really trying to get that sector ready to engage in new types of payment reform that was happening in the Medicaid space in New York State. And so the co-founders of As One were um, really leaders in the nonprofit sector, healthcare, human services, that for years had sort of seen um, aspects of the healthcare delivery system that were kind of disjointed and siloed, and that really weren't most effectively serving a lot of the clients and patients that they saw. They witnessed a lot of this sort of passing down through generations, these um, illness and, and disability and need. And so saw this grant opportunity as a way to build a structure that could seek to sort of reshape the future of healthcare in a way that more effectively could serve the comprehensive and complex needs of families and other groups of interrelated individuals. So not just focusing on one patient or one client at a time. And so that's really, you know, where this, um, where, where as one came from. Well, you're definitely speaking our language <laughs> with the idea of, you know, addressing the system and, and the larger family. I, you know, I saw on your website, I, I loved, it's just so succinct. You said, we aim to address the complex needs of family beyond just the patient. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a definitely um, kind of in the spirit of CFHA and in our podcast of what we try to promote. So I'm curious to hear more from you because I think our listeners really love to know more about examples of other people that are doing this work and how that can be done in different places and what it can look like. I uh, am not, wasn't familiar with the idea of an independent practice association. And so I wonder if you could describe a little bit more about your model of working and kind of how these principles are actually being put into practice. Right. So we chose um, to both become a IPA or an independent practice association, as well as establish um, a nonprofit body as well, 501c3. And the reason we needed the IPA was because we felt like in the Medicaid space, we were going to need to not only develop new models and approaches, but also develop um, adjoining new reimbursement models. So we had to be able to have an entity that could contract on behalf of all the organizations in our collaborative. And there's actually very few legal entities that will allow you to do that, and the IPA is one of them. And it's really being commonly used in collaborative care now, especially in New York. So that's really why we chose the IPA. And part of that is not just signing on the dotted line and saying, now we're part of this IPA, but it's engaging in collaborative work, like improvement of 
quality outcomes and sharing data, which is critical, sharing um, you know, patient information with, between treating providers. And so that was really critical for us um, to become the IPA and think about how we were going to um, really scale models, new, new types of models going forward. What you're describing is that attention to the different components that are necessary. We can't just look at the clinical piece. There's also the operational organizational piece and the financial piece. And I think that's what the you know position paper that we spent a lot of time talking about you know, in the spring really focused on that it's got to be all of these pieces coming together to make it actually you know, affect change in the world with our real actual patients. Yeah, no, that's so true. It's so true. I mean, that's essentially what we are working really hard on now. Um, for the first part of our life, we were created in 2018, we focused on building this structure for integrated uh, care amongst our collaborative and improving quality and sharing data. And then also thinking through what are the best practices um, and what are the lessons learned from across our network providers who serve children to adults um, in group care and developing this new model that we, um, our inaugural model is that what we call the complex um, families treatment model. And so, so clinically, what do we want to be in this model and what do we believe needs to be in this model? But then also thinking, you know, in New York State, we are um, an almost entirely managed care Medicaid program. So how are we going to implement this model in a way um, that's scalable? And that's what um, we've really developed. It's, it's a reimbursement model that builds on some existing billing codes, um, but then would require new contracts with payers on essentially with, with enhanced fees to cover the aspects of the integration um, that wouldn't be covered with just using existing billing codes. So um, it's taken a lot of discussions with many of the managed care organizations in, in New York City. We have interest um, and we've had a lot of engagement from one managed care organization. And so we've been using that to really build what could this model be. Um, and our hope is to be able to um, implement a pilot and then eventually scale that with all of the managed care organizations in, in New York City. That's amazing. Uh, that's just such important work. Uh, I wonder if you could give an example of how your organization is hoping to or, or is kind of encouraging those managed care organizations about moving forward towards a really family approach as opposed to just the individual patient. It's been a lot of work um, so our, our model of care, the way that we've structured it is, is specifically trying to entice payers by, by thinking about, you know, overlapping our interests and their interests. And payers are interested in helping to reduce the costs of patients that they have that are extremely, you know, high utilizers of healthcare that could otherwise be prevented um, through better use of, of healthcare service types. So what we've done is the way that the model works is you start by looking at a cohort of individual patients that have um, high cost and high utilization that, that, that's impactable. So not somebody who has like Alzheimer's or cancer, but um, who maybe has uh, out of control or uncontrolled um, illness or, or other types of healthcare conditions and starting with that cohort. So these high cost individuals, engaging them into the intervention and have, working with them to identify who are your family members, who are those other interrelated individuals in your life. So really using a broad term um, to define family and engaging that entire group in the clinical therapeutic intervention over the course of, of about nine months is, is really what we, we think of our model. So this model includes um, not only really heavy focus on that first index patient that was identified, but everyone in the cohort. So you know, care plans for everyone in the cohort, as well as um, delivering services to improve that interplay and that um, those relationships between the group members, because when the intervention concludes, the thought is, um, 
the more healthier that dynamic is, the more likely that those individuals can be each other's supports going forward and can really support each other in sustainable, improved outcomes. It's not so, about the the individual family members, but the family as a system. That's as awesome. A whole, as a whole. Now, this is expensive, right? So this is, we believe this would be largely in-person. This would be an interdisciplinary care team. This would be, you know, weekly meetings with the family titrating down. The only way that you could really justify and also show an ROI on this expensive of an intervention would, would make, would have to be that, that you have at least one expensive individual um, for the whole group. But the benefit really is that others in that family unit, um, you know, can benefit from uh, prevention services, you know, other types of healthcare um, services that they may not have otherwise been connected with. So that's, that's what's really enticed payers, is trying to think like a payer. Um, when we picked out some sample patients and, and brought their um, sort of descriptions and history to the payer, um, they ran it through an algorithm that showed that there was hundreds of thousands of dollars of potential savings just on this small cohort of individuals, not just the whole, not even the whole family. So that really piqued the interest of the payers. So we didn't go and seek families that we already know existed together. We instead um, sought first individuals that were expensive that we thought the payers would be interested in and then built the families around them. So it was a little bit of a different way of thinking about how to reach families. No, I think that that is just a, it's such a recognition and an acknowledgement that when we only see the expensive patient, our listeners can't see my air quotes, but <laughs> expensive patient, we're looking past so much of the context that impacts their their health and their growth. So, you know, and I, my guess is that when you find one expensive patient, there's probably multiple family members within that system who also are really at risk and could benefit, you know, hugely from these services. So this is so exciting. I just uh, am really, um, you know, just impressed with your work and so thankful for you for sharing this model with us. And I, there's so many clear, just kind of pearls of wisdom I can pull from what we've already discussed about matching your goals with the pair's goals and thinking about scalability of the model and, and you know, those steps of thinking about the different pieces. I wonder if there's any other, either, you know, pieces of wisdom that you can share or stories about, you know, that give more information or give more of a picture of the work that you've been doing. Mm. I, you know, I think the payer piece is critical because I think um, looking to utilize funding that already exists out there um, to pay for what we know, you know, really needs to be comprehensive services for, for groups, for families is incredibly important. And um, the only way to access that is really to align your, um, your goals with, with, you know, the, the goals of those with the money. So mm -hmm. um, I think it's incredibly important. I think it's been really effective for us to lay out a model um, that had specificity in terms of the length, the time. Um, I think payers found it attractive that it's, a, it's not something that we just say exponentially needs to happen, that it's a short-term high-intensity intervention that will show short-term return on investment. That's what the payer cares about. What we care about are, you know, really um, broader uh, positive outcomes for the entire unit and obviously long-term sustainable better outcomes. So um, I think that is, if there's, if there's nothing else that, that your listeners walk away with, it's really thinking about how to align that to access, um, you know, existing funds that, that, could, that could pay for comprehensive and integrated services. Well, I think that's very wise, and I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, I wonder, you know, if you if there's any way that people could contact you to get more information, or if you would like to send them somewhere where they could learn more about the work that you're doing. Absolutely, we have a website www.myas1.org. My contact information is on that website, as well as information about um, our network of providers and some of the services that we provide. So I'm happy if listeners would, would like to access um, our website and, and contact me through there. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for joining us this month. We look forward to seeing you next month. We look forward to seeing you in person next year in Milwaukee. And we're going to close out the way that we always do with an ending meditation from Deepu. All right. Uh, I think it is the time of the year where all of us are trying to balance and find equilibrium and a sense of perhaps meaningful end to a very um, rough year for many of us. So I have a little a blessing from John O'Donohue called For Equilibrium. Like the joy of the sea coming home to shore, may the relief of laughter rinse through your soul. As the wind loves to call things to dance, may your gravity be lightened by grace. Like the dignity of moonlight restoring the earth, May your thoughts incline with reverence and respect. As water takes whatever shape it is in, so free may you be about who you become. As silence smiles on the other side of what's said, may your sense of irony bring perspective. As time remains free of all that it frames, May your mind stay clear of all it names. May your prayer of listening deepen enough to hear in the depths the laughter of God. Thank you. Thank you, Deepam. Thank you, Bridget. Awesome. Thank you, listeners. Right, guys. And we'll see everybody next month. Mm -hmm.